11 a.m. The silence is oppressive. It weighs in on one's eardrums. Captain Bob Casey, 124th Field Artillery, 33rd Division, AEF, France, November 11th, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 95, An Oppressive Silence. Admin notes remain light again, so I'll repeat some basic info on how to support the podcast. Patreon pitch. As patrons on Patreon, you will be helping to financially support the podcast. As thanks... You will have early access to all new episodes, as well as transcripts and bibliographies for those episodes. Patrons also have other perks, such as extra episodes that have not yet been released. If this sounds interesting to you, check us out on patreon.com backslash Battles of the First World War podcast. Patronage of the BFWWP can begin with as little as $1 per episode, and it is greatly appreciated. Patrons are only charged when a new episode is released. If you would like to make a one-time donation or want to give to the podcast but not through Patreon, head on over to the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, where there is a link to PayPal there you can securely donate to the podcast. Financial support is great, but hell, I think this is the last podcast on this mortal coil that does not have a corporate sponsor. It's all good. So you don't need money to show your love for the podcast. There are a couple of other things you can do. First thing is to subscribe on the show. On the iPhone podcast app, it's called Following the Podcast Nowadays. Next thing you can do after that is give the podcast a five-star review. Subscribing gets the podcast noticed by the podcast gods. And the reviews help show new and potential listeners the awesome thing we've got going on here. You wonderful folks out there won't find it a stretch that I really enjoy podcasting. The reading and writing parts of the process are my favorite, but I also enjoy the chance to unleash my dramatic inner actor with recording. For you folks who might follow Zodiac signs, I'm a Leo, it shows. But I also immensely enjoy connecting with everyone here. It's really wonderful to have connected with so many of you 
over the years. And what a medium the cosmos has created for us. I mean, how great are podcasts that some arrogant guy from north of Boston can bring you stories from World War I wherever you are in the world. I've got some work to do after this episode, but I hope to still get some podcasts out at least every once in a while. Who knows what my studies will bring. This episode is certainly not an au revoir, more of an a bientôt. All right, let's get back into it. As we saw from the last two episodes, the American First Army had broken through the German Army's lines, and the Germans were trying to create whatever space they could in the Meuse so they could make a new stand behind the river. The Germans were also appealing for a brokered end to the fighting, but in the meantime, the war kept on. And with it went on the endless and numbing death and destruction. On the night of the 4th through the 5th November, Doughboys of the 89th Division reached the western bank of the River Meuse near Puyli village. Captain Arthur Ware, an exhausted battalion commander in the exhausted 356th Infantry, called for volunteers to attempt a crossing of the rain-swollen River Meuse. He chose half of the men who stepped forward, and off they went towards the Meuse. Hours later, only a few came back, and with little to report other than the ones who failed to return had been machine-gunned or had drowned. Captain Ware, under relentless pressure from his superiors, then made a fateful decision. Quote, Up on the Meuse, where Captain Ware died, we had been advancing night and day for five days. The pace was killing, and the strain on him with the responsibility of the whole battalion must have been terrible. We were trying to cross the river, but the Germans had blown out all of the bridges, and it was impossible. The battalion was in an exposed, dangerous place. Captain Ware gave the order to withdraw the battalion, and then shot himself. I am positive in my mind that he believed that he was saving his men at the cost of his own life. I was nowhere near him at the time. He sent word to me by his orderly to write his brother Jim and say simply that he was weary and tired. End quote. To the north of the 89th Division, the men of the American 77th Division reached the Meuse near Villers-de-Vent-Mouzon on the 6th. When informed by engineers that the Germans had a machine gun death grip on the river and any attempt to bridge it, 2nd Lieutenant Floyd Smith of the 305th Infantry Regiment went to sea for himself. Smith and a sergeant tried crossing the river using a blown-up bridge, but 2nd Lieutenant Smith was pulled down the river by the current. Smith wound up on the German side, where he swiftly captured a surprised enemy machine gun crew. After that, he directed his troops to fire at a thicket where another machine gun nest was dug in. Those Germans beat a hasty retreat, and Smith's efforts helped open a way across the Meuse. As the Americans continued to push the Germans back, 
along with the French, British, and Belgians elsewhere on the Western Front, the Germans pushed hard for an armistice. Germany itself was collapsing into revolution and anarchy. Kaiser Wilhelm II, still nominally the ruler of the nation, was by this time completely irrelevant. The German government under Prince Max of Baden organized an armistice negotiation team under the German centrist political leader Matthias Erzberger. Erzberger and his group were to cross the battle lines on November 7th so they could meet with Marshal Ferdinand Foch. The group was made up of Erzberger himself, a General Detloff von Winterfeld, Kriegsmarine Captain Ernst Wanselow, and Graf Alfred von Oberendorf, Graf meaning Count in German. Oberendorf, a former German minister, was Erzberger's friend. Packing into three cars at the German army headquarters in Spa, Belgium, Erzberger's group left towards the front line near the Chimay fromy la capelle guise road. They had been instructed to do so by Ferdinand Foch. They arrived at the rendezvous point late at 9.20 in the evening, where French poilus boarded the vehicles and directed them into the French rear areas. They arrived, of course, at the famous rail car in Compiègne where the armistice would be signed. An absolutely fantastic book that covers these last days of the war and all the drama that took place within them is John Toland's No Man's Land, 1918, The Last Year of the Great War. We're going to quote now the meeting of the German delegation and Marshal Foch. Quote, it was 9 a.m., November 8th, by the time the Erzberger party was ushered into a railway car in the forest of Compiègne. The Germans stood at one side of a large table, behind chairs marked with their names. A few minutes later, Foch entered with Wagand, Admiral Wemyss, and two other British naval officers. After a brief introduction and cool, formal bows, the company took seats facing each other. Foch turned to his interpreter to say in a low, icy undertone, ask these gentlemen what they want. Erzberger was surprised that there were no Americans, Belgians, or Italians present. In German, he said, we have come to receive the Allied powers' proposals for an armistice on land and sea and in the air. There were murmurs when the interpreters translated proposals, and Foch abruptly interrupted. Tell these gentlemen that I have no proposals to make, he said curtly, and half rose from his chair as if to abandon the conference. Count von Oberendorf leaned across the table. Monsieur le Marechal, he said urgently, surely this is too serious a moment to quarrel over words. How would you like us to express ourselves? It is a matter of complete indifference to us. It is for you, gentlemen, to say what you want, Foch said brusquely. As you are aware, Monsieur le Marechal, Oberendorf went on, we are here as a result of a note from the President of the United States. If you will allow me, I will read it. 
He read the note aloud, then said, after a pause, If I understand this aright, it means that you will communicate to us the armistice terms. Wagen began to read out the 18 crushing clauses. Their principal conditions were as follows. Evacuation of occupied territory, including Alsace-Lorraine, within 14 days. Surrender of all submarines. Interment in neutral or allied ports of 10 battleships, 6 heavy cruisers, 8 light cruisers, and 50 destroyers. Renouncement of the Brest-Litovsk and Budapest treaties. Reparations for damage, as well as immediate return of all valuables and securities removed from the invaded regions. Foch noticed that General von Winterfeld was very pale and sobbed several times. Tears welled in Captain Vansilov's eyes. Gentlemen, said Foch, I leave this text with you. You have 72 hours to reply to it. Meanwhile, you may present observations on details to me. For God's sake, Monsieur Le Marechal, pleaded Erzberger, do not wait for those 72 hours. Stop the hostilities this very day. Our armies are a prey to anarchy. Bolshevism threatens them, and Bolshevism may gain ground over the whole of Germany and threaten France herself. I do not know in what state your armies are, said Foch. I only know in what situation mine are. Not only can I not stop the offensive, but I am giving orders to continue it with redoubled energy. General von Winterfeld, still distraught, intervened. Monsieur le Marchal, it will be necessary for our staffs to consult each other and to discuss the whole of the details of execution. He then read a prepared statement, pointing out the large number of people who would die while the armistice terms was being studied. But Foch was adamant. The governments have stated their conditions, he said. Hostilities cannot cease before the armistice is signed. Erzberger asked for permission to send radio messages in the clear to Prince Max and to Hindenburg, but Foch insisted nothing be transmitted except by code or special courier. He also refused Erzberger's request for an extra day to get the reply from Germany. The answer must come, he said, before 11 a.m., November 11th. After conferring, the Germans asked that a wireless to this effect be dispatched to both Berlin and Spa. Their request to send Captain von Heldorf to Spa was also granted. He was instructed to tell the OHL that it was not likely they would be allowed to make counterproposals on anything essential, but that they would do their best to get what concessions they could. Heldorf set out at 1 p.m. End quote. Marshal Foch was true to his word. On November 9th, he relayed a statement by wire to Allied field commanders. He wrote, quote, The enemy disorganized by our repeated attacks is withdrawing along the whole front. It is important to maintain and hasten our action. I appeal to the energy and initiative of commanders-in-chief and their armies to secure decisive results. End quote. AEF Commander-in-Chief General John Blackjack Pershing needed no encouragement. He had already 
gotten himself into a bit of political hot water when he stated that Germany should be crushed and only unconditional surrender should be on the table. In military matters, he was following a similar line of thought. On November 5th, he had ordered the AEF 1st and 2nd Armies to expand their attacks, quote, with the ultimate purpose of destroying the enemy's organization and driving him beyond the existing frontier in the regions of Brie and Longui, end quote. Pershing would keep pushing until the minute the ceasefire went into effect, if it did. To Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett, none of this armistice talk affected his day-to-day work. Fighting was our concern and our only concern until we were ordered to stop, he stated. But word of the armistice talks made their way down to the troops in the field. Field commanders like Major General John Hines, commanding 3rd Corps, shut any such talk down immediately. He had, quote, forbidden the talking about peace in this corps, impressing on the command that now is the time, above all others, to hit the Bosch hard, and that there can be no talk of peace or after war until the Hun is crushed, end quote. By the 7th of November, many of the AEF's attacking divisions had reached the Meuse, which the Germans had largely retreated behind by this point. American units made repeated attempts to cross the river. These attempts were frequently repulsed by withering machine gun and artillery fire, as well as men drowning in the river's current. But here and there, persistent attempts were rewarded by success. In the 89th Division sector, Captain Ware's suicide had not stopped operations. Someone else stepped in to command his battalion, and the relentless push went on. On November 8th, Sergeant Waldo Hatler of B Company, 356 Infantry, earned distinction, quote, when volunteers were called for to secure information as to the enemy's position on the opposite bank of the Meuse River, Sergeant Hatler was the first to offer his services for this dangerous mission. Swimming across the river, he succeeded in reaching the German lines after another soldier who had started with him had been seized with cramps and drowned in midstream. Alone, he carefully and courageously reconnoitered the enemy's positions, which were held in force, and again successfully swam the river, bringing back information of great value. End quote. Sergeant Hatler later earned the Medal of Honor for his actions. The next day, Private Harold Johnston of A Company, 356 Infantry, crossed the Meuse on a similar mission and nearly drowned trying to get back. He was pulled out of the river and informed his superiors of what he'd seen. Johnston, too, earned the Medal of Honor. On November 10th, the 89th Division crossed the Meuse in force. To their right, the 2nd Division had been doing the same. At Mouzon, patrols were sent out to test German defenses at the riverbanks. Sergeant Ludovicus Maria Matthias van Eersel, a Dutch immigrant to the U.S. who had learned English after putting on a doughboy's uniform, was in one of those patrols. Quote, 
While a member of the reconnaissance patrol sent out at night to ascertain the condition of a damaged bridge, Sergeant Van Eersel volunteered to lead a party across the bridge in the face of heavy machine gun and rifle fire from a range of only 75 yards. Crawling alone along the debris of the ruined bridge, he came upon a trap which gave way and precipitated him into the water. In spite of the swift current, he succeeded in swimming across the stream and found a lodging place among the timbers on the opposite bank. Disregarding the enemy fire, he made a careful investigation of the hostile position by which the bridge was defended and then returned to the other bank of the river, reporting this valuable information to the battalion commander. End quote. Sergeant Van Eersel would later earn the Medal of Honor. The AEF continued its attacks. On First Army Front, attacks took place all across its wide frontage. To the southeast of Verdun, on the other side of the Meuse Heights and at the edge of the Wuvre Plain, the far right front of the AEF First Army had gone on the attack. Under the command of the French 2nd Colonial Corps, the fresh doughboys of the 81st Division launched their first assault. Made up primarily of draftees from the Carolinas and Florida, and later replaced by new draftees from the southern states, the 81st Wildcat Division had just entered the battle area on the 6th. Sectored between what today is the D603 road between the villages of Abocourt and Etain on the north, and a rough line between Fresnes on Wouvre to Parfondrup on the south, very roughly south of and along the A4 highway today, the Wildcats had begun attacking on the 9th with the objective of reaching the N18 road running north to south from Longuillon to Spincourt to Conflans. The goal was to get onto the Wouvre Plain so that later on a more mobile offensive could take place. The division began its attack on the 9th. On the right, the 2nd Battalion, 324th Infantry, attacked at 11 o'clock with no support on either flank. German machine guns in the Chateau and Ferme d'Alnois, northeast of Rennes village, opened up on the doughboys and drove them to the cold ground. Support units came up and dug in along the Fren Manuel Road, and the attacking units pulled back through these troops once it became dark. Any advance here could only be measured in dozens of meters. To the left of 2nd Battalion, 324th Infantry, 1st Battalion had already attacked at 0900, plunging into the Bois de Manuel ahead of them. These wildcats pushed about a kilometer into the various woods and got into a nasty firefight with the enemy. After the capture of some Germans and their gear, the Doughboys withdrew. 3rd Battalion, 324th Infantry, in support, had followed the 1st into the woods, but withdrew when the 1st Battalion did. All except for K Company, that is. Doughboys of this company stayed in the woods that night. From a short history titled Narrative History of Company K, 324th Infantry, 81st Stonewall Division, by a John H. Workman, 
published in 1919, we have an account of the day's events. Quote, After about 200 yards advance into the woods, at a moment's cessation of artillery fire, an effort was made to reorganize the company. But before this was completed, the German artillery forced it to move farther into the woods. This continued, so reorganization of the company failed. It was reported, and the attack by the division in this sector was made on the assumption that the enemy was withdrawing, but this proved erroneous. The terrain ahead of the company now was low and marshy with heavy woods, though the larger timber had been splintered by the enemy's artillery fire. The whole section here had been most elaborately organized for defense during the last four years. It was a perfect network of wire and a greater number of concrete machine gun and trench mortar emplacements and deep dugouts were everywhere located to the Germans' best advantage. But in the face of all this disadvantage, gas, airplane fire and machine gun fire, K Company went forth with gas masks on, without rifle grenades or hand grenades, and a scarcity of ammunition, all day long in the assaulting formation amidst the heaviest artillery barrage the Germans ever threw over in this section, according to their reports. Onward rushed the men, from shell hole to shell hole, through thick undergrowth, sweeping all in their path, capturing machine gun nests, ammunition dumps, crossing the original Hindenburg line and advancing two kilometers beyond through the thick forest of Bois de Manuel to an open field about 700 yards from Ville-en-Wouvre. In the meantime, the company had gotten beyond the German artillery range, had cut the German telephone lines, and a part of the 318th Machine Gun Battalion had annexed itself. Most of the 1st, 3rd, and 4th platoons were at other points nearby, but here, at the corner of the open field, was encountered a German camp, where a fierce battle raged for 30 minutes, in which five German prisoners were taken with the loss of one man wounded, named Corsentino. It was then late in the afternoon, and the captain decided to withdraw to the old Hindenburg line with the prisoners, spend the night, and wait for reinforcements. Lieutenant Spears, Elliot, and Smith were in other quarters in trenches, dugouts, and shell holes along the line with their platoons. During the night, they had been discovered by the German machine gunners and snipers, and a heavy barrage before day compelled them to withdraw to another position. During the day, Private Kessler was killed by a sniper, and Lieutenant Smith was killed in the night by a piece of shrapnel. A number had been wounded by gas, machine gun bullets, and shrapnel. While the 2nd Platoon had a little better protection at the home of machine gun nest number 3, every man was on guard the whole night. Several times during the night, the German artillery fire was directed at this point, but no damage was done. In the course of the night, 15 machine guns were placed around the dugout by the Germans. It was a very difficult position to hold against a German aggressive counterattack. Having no rifle grenades or hand grenades, 
A scarcity of ammunition and no reinforcements during the night, the captain decided to withdraw to a better fortified position before day, but a heavy barrage prevented it. He then decided to hold the position, and at daybreak, the fiercest of all battles took place, and not until there were twenty or more German casualties did the Germans cover the trenches with machine gun fire and hand grenades. Being greatly outnumbered and in a disadvantageous position to make a charge, withdrew down the old Hindenburg line without a casualty, though seven men were taken prisoners. McKnight, Lay, Roberts, Snelson, White, Corzentino, and Cardwell, all of which returned to the company later, except Corzentino. After the withdrawal, the company was then relieved by another outfit. The enemy that K Company had been combating in the previous struggles was under the command of Captain Schwab of the 18th Bavarian Regiment. End quote. The 81st Division would attack again the next day, but it was its 161st Brigade on the left that would make progress by seizing a few villages on the way towards the original objective line. Morning dawned on November 10th, 1918. That day, Kaiser Wilhelm II, finally understanding his time as ruler of Imperial Germany was at an end, formally abdicated the German throne. Civilians took over the German government. Later in the evening, word went out to Matthias Erzberger that he and his team were to sign the armistice. Well to the north of the 81st Division, the 32nd Division was pushing northeast past a village named Puvillet. Captain Louis Gottschalk, commanding a battalion in the 128th Infantry Regiment, couldn't see in the heavy morning fog that he and his men were in low ground with forests closing in around them. The fog lifted and German machine guns opened fire from just about every side there was. Private Horace Baker of M Company, 128th Infantry, was in that fight. Quote, Well, for our part, we marched and we marched. Bullets whistled over our heads and around us. Machine guns popped. Cannon boomed near us on the hill to our left. But we did not catch up with the other battalions. I wanted to take my squad and slip up on the cannoneers, Indian fashion, and stop those hated noises. But we went ahead. Then through a wood and across a small brook, much like one at home, and we halted and lay down. And then the battle began in earnest. I have a vivid recollection of a glance across an open field with a Yank battalion and skirmish line stretched across it and the field fairly sizzling with bullets. But it was not the plan for us to enter that field until the battalion there had advanced a certain distance, so we sought what protection we could and waited. We were in the midst of another inferno, but not making part of the noise. But the Germans knew we were there, as the whiz-bangs they launched at us from the east testified. One of these hit a treetop over me and broke it out, nearly frightening me out of my wits. After a long time, it seemed an hour, we had orders to retreat our steps. We took position in a ditch that the French must have dug for military purposes years ago. It was just right 
position, depth, and all, and I could see no other reason for its being there. The uproar gradually lessened. We could see nothing of the battle now, for we were in the deep woods. I began to wonder if we would have to spend the night in that forsaken ditch. Presently, we caught a glimpse of a company filing along toward the rear close by our position. And then there was another, and another. I wondered why they were doing this, but soon found out. That is, I found out what they were doing, and will tell you now, though at the time of my narrative it was dark to me. The powers that were, seeing that we were in the predicament we were, and that the elements on either side of us could not come up in time to aid us, gave orders for us to retire to the position we had left that morning. Since the third battalion had come up last, we were to hold fast, while the other two battalions went to the rear, and then we went back. But I'll tell the world it was not funny to retire with the Germans closing in on the rear. The Americans pushed forward some three kilometers before they realized they were way out ahead with their flanks in the air. An order to pull back to the jump-off line near Pouvillet was given, and the doughboys retreated. Wounded and dead were left behind. They would be recovered after the guns fell silent the next day. Well past the east bank of the Meuse and beyond the Meuse Heights, the 5th Division, having liberated Dun-sur-Meuse and the surrounding villages, got itself in a brutal fight for the village of lupi sur loison Clearing the buildings of the enemy, the Red Diamond Doughboys soon found themselves under a firestorm of artillery as the Germans took their revenge on them. Further to the south and southeast, along the new line established after the San Miel operation, the AEF 2nd Army went on the attack as well. AEF 2nd Army Commander Lieutenant General Robert Bullard and his staff called it a reconnaissance in force, but that was really just semantics. The Second Army itself was an exercise in semantics, as it was really just an oversized corps as compared to Liggett's First Army. From left to right, Bullard's field army consisted of the 33rd and 28th Divisions, both recovering from extensive and draining combat up in the Meuse, the brand new 7th Division, and the much maligned 92nd Buffalo Division. All four divisions launched their recons in force on the 10th. The veteran 33rd and 28th divisions, as well as the green 7th, accomplished little. It was on the very right edge of the entire American portion of the Western Front that the black doughboys of the 92nd division wrenched the 2nd Army's only success. The last time we were with the men of the 92nd Division, it was with the unfortunate debacle of the 368th Infantry Regiment in the fields before Binarville. Provided with a poorly trained regiment's unsurprising initial poor performance in combat, racist elements within AEF leadership had all the ammunition they needed to relegate African-American soldiers to perpetual hard labor in the rear areas of the front. When the 2nd Army was formed in October 1918, Lieutenant General Robert Lee Bullard, a name that screams to any black soldier, ain't no friends here, found himself in command of the very division he had much denigrated after Beanerville. 
On the front line north of the French town of Pont-à-Mousson, the 92nd Division was the closest unit to the German-occupied city of Metz, a little over 30 kilometers to the north. Northeast of Pont-à-Mousson is a village named Les Menils, and directly east of Les Menils is a hill named the Xon Heights. The Doughboys of the 92nd held this hill and much of the eastward running ridge it was a part of. To the left were the FNGs of the U.S. 7th Division, and to the right were the French. To the north-northwest of Cousin Hill was a local German salient pushing down towards Pont-à-Mousson. In the middle of the salient was the Bois Fréhaut, a wood where the Germans were very well dug in, as would be expected. A valley runs through the middle of the wood, and today a rail line in that valley bisects the wood. Southeast of Bois-Fréhaut is a smaller wood named Tête d'Or, and southwest of Bois-Fréhaut is Ferme de Bel-Air, which is still there today. Northwest of Bois-Fréhaut is the village of Chamblay, and to the northeast is the village of Bouchière. At Bois-Fréhaut's base was yet another small wood named Bois de la Voivrote. The Germans heavily gassed the general area on the regular since the Americans patrolled no man's land often. Bois-Fréhaut was well defended, with a testament portrayed by the many rotting corpses hanging on the German barbed wire there. Attacking here would help open the way towards Metz, long coveted by the upper command of the AEF. One white officer in particular was determined to not see the mistakes of the 368th Infantry's leadership repeated. Major Warner Ross, commander of 2nd Battalion, 365th Infantry Regiment, was intent on seeing his men succeed. Major Ross seems to have been a breed apart amongst the white leadership of the 92nd Division. A lawyer in the civilian world and deeply religious, Ross did his best to lead and care for his men. In a self-published memoir titled My Colored Battalion, itself mainly the text of a post-war speech he gave at a veterans' meeting, Ross spoke of his leadership style. Quote, It will seem strange to most of you, almost impossible to many who saw service in other outfits, when I tell you that during my entire service with the 365th Infantry, which I began as a captain in December 1917 and ended as a battalion commander when the regiment was broken up at Camp Upton, New York, in March 1919, not one colored officer under my command was ever placed under arrest, and not one colored officer was ever threatened with an efficiency board. And during the many trying months that I commanded the 2nd Battalion, both in and out of the front lines, only two enlisted men were tried by me as summary court, and they were acquitted. End quote. Once he'd received his orders to prepare to attack, Major Ross gathered his junior officers together the night before the attack. Quote, Mine, then, was the honor of being in direct command of the main operation which had started the long-discussed Allied move to capture Metz, said to be the most impregnable German stronghold. Mine, too, was the opportunity to give a colored battalion a chance to prove its worth beyond all peradventure, 
to help them disprove the widely circulated report that colored troops could not advance and hold under real and prolonged heavy fire, to help them dispel the impression so many had that colored officers, platoon leaders, and company commanders could not successfully handle colored soldiers. In short, to give them a chance to win a victory that will stand out more clearly as the years go by, a victory requiring all the virtues that soldiers individually and collectively should possess, a victory clear-cut, unaided, complete, and unquestionable, where others had failed and against a stronghold, a part of and guarding a strategic position that at all hazards the enemy meant to hold, end quote. Ross then began a meeting, again from his memoirs, quote, Promptly at 8.30, as ordered, the officers assembled at the house we were using as temporary battalion headquarters. The company from the machine gun battalion had not arrived, and for what we were about to undertake, machine guns were important. So I called Captain Allen and his lieutenants of our regimental machine gun company into the conference. Had the other company arrived, Captain Allen of the company I had sent for on my own initiative probably would not now be lying buried in France. So works fate, as some call it. It's a sad thing to have to order officers and men on missions of almost certain death, especially when they are so willing, even anxious to go, and when you know them as well as I knew mine. But such is war. For hours in a dim, candle-lighted room we worked, studied charts and blueprints, planned each move of each detachment and platoon in detail, Company and platoon commanders laid their courses, drew maps, and studied them carefully, for they would have to travel independently and by compass after entering enemy wire. We carefully rehearsed our plans of liaison. In short, every detail was gone over. All emergencies we could conceive of were discussed, so that each captain and each platoon leader, some were non-coms, knew his part and its relation to the whole. Each one explained aloud just what he was to do and when and how, and how such and such developments were to affect his actions. For you must know that nothing but well-nigh faultless teamwork would enable us to accomplish our mission, to capture and to hold this strong and seemingly impregnable key position under the big guns of the world-renowned fortress of Metz, to say nothing of its other means of defense, with but one battalion and but five minutes' artillery preparation did not mean to rush out with a whoop and sweep all before us. It required a thorough, practical knowledge gained by experience of all the complicated phases of trench and open warfare. It required officers and non-commissioned officers of iron nerve and cool judgment under fire, and brave troops of exceptional discipline and the finest training. Whether those higher up expected us to succeed or could have expected any battalion to succeed, I doubted. So I had made up my mind we would succeed. End quote. Major Ross is taking the time and doing the hard work of ensuring every junior officer and leader knew his job paid off. His battalion broke up into detachments and one of them flanked Bel Air Farm to silently bayonet German machine gun teams there. Another detachment cut through the wire at the farm, and the doughboys of the 365th were through once the American artillery barrage signaled it was go time. 
Working from a makeshift PC in a small wood named Tet Dor, Major Ross stayed in this spot to ease communication burdens, even when that spot was gassed by the enemy. Messages kept coming in and going out, and with every leader knowing what they were to do, Bois Frejot was secured by 10 o'clock on the morning of the 10th, cutting out much of the German salient. Major Warner Ross and his soldiers showed the real potential of the 92nd Division that day. Soldiering has nothing to do with race. It's all about leadership and training. That night of the 10th through the 11th, as we know, would be the last night of the war. Many of the officers and men of the AEF did not know that, but talk of an impending armistice was everywhere. Men could sense the war's end was close, or at least an end to the fighting. But until word of that armistice came, the American army would go on fighting. Men, said Captain Charles Dunbeck to his Marines of 2nd Battalion, 5th Regiment, as German artillery pounded the ravine they were sheltering in on the night of the 10th. I'm going across that river, and I expect you to go with me. What remained of the battalion crossed the Meuse. Marine Private Elton Mackin was there. Quote, They lied to us that night. Some were bitter at the thought of it. Was this the confidence we'd earned along the road from June? It may have been because we had so many men who still had hope of living. Some of us were not long on the front. It was a patent, flimsy lie. Old hands among us knew the difference at once and were prepared for anything. We're going to move a lot of ammunition over to the 89th, to the right of us, or so the story ran. There was also talk of armistice on the morrow. The fellows didn't really want to fight again. Not all of them. We moved away in single file and groping columns, silently, forbidden talk and any extra noise. Our guns built up a chorus of barrage. We took a winding, downward sort of path among the lesser growth. Someone on the line of march said, River. We were going over. The German army held the far bank, as all well knew. Some of us remembered night attacks in other places. One heard men curse our own barrage at such a time because it spoiled the chances of surprise. German gunfire came to meet us. Most of it was high-explosive stuff thrown blindly anywhere along the little trails we used for our advance. It opened gaps in marching files of men too closely bunched because of forest darkness. Dead and wounded lay along the paths. No one took the time to care for them. We entered a ravine and scrambled down its rocky, twisting bed below the shelter of its steep-cut walls and had a little space of cover from the shells. Lower toward the river, we walked into a bank of fog. It was like stepping into another world, a much quieter one. There was a tendency among the men to loiter there in the shelter of the gully slopes. The movement of our little column slowed perceptibly, and noncoms cursed and raved quite desperately, trying to keep the men in motion downward through the night. Death lashed and tore at the mouth of the ravine along a railroad track, the General's Railroad. Men took deep breaths to fortify themselves before walking into hell. 
Running figures scrambled upward past us, frantically endeavoring to fight their way out of that river pit of flame and fog. The adjutant captured one and pistol-whipped him when he fought to get away. They questioned him, harsh, screaming voices pitched against a roar of sound, machine-gun made, but full of cannon fire, too. The bridge! The bridge! Where is the bridge? Come on, guide us! We moved off to our right along the track, an automatic jammed tight against the fellow's spine, leading us. Then Coxie stumbled on a broken trail. The guide leaped once or twice against the fog and disappeared. We heard the major curse as he fired, missing him. A frantic officer of engineers came down the track, arms spread and waving, greeting us profanely, glad to find us. He turned away, pointing as he went, trying to help the major understand the crossing preparations. Maxims on the far bank of the river found us in the fog and thinned our ranks a bit before they swung away, still firing blindly, anywhere. We lost the officer who had been guiding us, so we kept moving down the track. We came to some living guideposts along the right-of-way, our engineers, spaced yards apart along the road we had to take. We heard them faintly, saw them outlined against the flares, and followed them. We heard them scream, The bridge! The bridge! This way! Come on, Marines! We saw men totter suddenly against the light and fall as bullets found them. Saw other fellows take their places instantly. The bridge! Come on! This way! We dropped below the rails along the edge of the river and halted where a knot of men were grouped. A rope or two reached forward into the fog. Men clung to them. We waited for our column to close up, sprawling on the muddy shore, peering at a wall of river mist and fearsome noises. End quote. The armistice was not talk, of course and Matthias Erzberger's team of negotiators met with Marshal Foch again on the morning of Monday, November 11th, 1918. From John Toland's No Man's Land, quote, It was 2.15 on the morning of November 11th by the time the final armistice session began. I tried with each separate article of the armistice to get even milder terms, recalled Erzberger but the liveliest argument came over the article which provided for the continuation of the blockade. For more than an hour, Erzberger and his colleagues pleaded. In detail, I pointed out that by means of this article, an essential part of the World War was being continued, namely England's starvation policy, under which German women and children suffered the most. During this argument, Count von Oberndorf explained that this was not fair. Not fair, exploded Admiral Wemyss. Why, you sank our ships without discrimination. Even so, the British representatives promised to inform their government of the German wish to have the blockade lifted. It was also agreed by all the Allies that they would supply Germany with food during the armistice. At 5.05, everything was settled and to assure hostilities ceasing as soon as possible, it was decided to type the last page of the text immediately for signatures. Foch and Wemyss signed first. Again, tears were in the eyes of Winterfeld and Vansilov as they forced themselves to sign. The last signature was affixed about 5.10, but it was agreed to set the time officially at 5, 
so that the armistice could come into effect six hours later at 11 a.m. French time. Erzberger then asked to be heard and read a declaration from the four German plenipotentiaries. It called attention to the short time allowed for evacuation and the surrender of essential means of transportation. This might make it impossible to execute the conditions without its being the fault of either the German government or the German people. The latter had held off a world of enemies for 50 months and would preserve their liberty and unity despite every kind of violence. A nation of 70 millions of people suffers, it concluded, but it does not die. Très bien, said Foch, and declared the session ended at 5.30. As the two delegations parted, there was not a single handshake. Foch at once sent a message to commanders-in-chief on all fronts by radio and telephone, ordering a cessation of hostilities at 11 a.m. Troops were not to go beyond the line reached at that time until further orders, and all communication with the enemy was forbidden until receipt of instruction. End quote. So there it was. Word made its way out to the military forces in the field, and by morning everyone knew the fighting was to cease at 11 a.m., the AEF, very controversially to many folks today, had orders to keep on attacking. One of those attacking units was the 11th Infantry Regiment at Lupi sur loison The commander, a Colonel Robert Peck, had one more attack planned for that morning before the ceasefire took effect. But as we learn from Dr. Ed Lengel's book, To Conquer Hell, the opposing German colonel had another idea. Quote, a few minutes before 10.30, a German officer walked toward the American lines, waving a white flag. Speaking perfect English, he asked the sentries to lead him to their colonel. They did so, no doubt congratulating themselves that the enemy intended to surrender, but the German officer's message was different. We wish to cease firing and avoid further bloodshed he told Peck as Lukert stood nearby. Podcaster note, Lukert was Lieutenant E.P. Lukert. My division is four miles away, but I am ordered to cover that retreat and permit the removal of that material. This I must do, and will. I know you will attack in a few minutes. One grand finish, so to speak, and I am prepared to meet you on that crest. Pointing, the German declared that he had approximately 65 machine guns, all trained on the open ground that the Americans would have to cover. They are laid and waiting to stop your advance up that hill, he said. Will you come and cause more casualties, or will you give us a respite until 11 o'clock, when we can withdraw without further fighting? No, is that so? The official 5th Division in history quoted Peck as replying. Then that spoils all my schemes. Lukert, who was there, only remembered him gruffly telling the German that he would act as he deemed fit and sending him away. In any event, the attack was cancelled, due, in Peck's official report, to heavy fog. Lukert was darn glad of it. 
Instead, we collected the dead, the last heroic dead, and buried them near the church. End quote. Down the American line in the sector of the depleted 26th Yankee Division, just over the Meuse Heights, the 103rd Infantry Regiment did not have the same luck. From Jonathan Bratton's book, To the Last Man, quote, Rumors continued that morning that an armistice had been signed, but division headquarters sent out strict notices that the regular duties would go ahead with no change. The phone buzzed at regimental headquarters, 0915 on 11 November. Only the artillery would fire. The infantry would remain in place until 1100, at which time the armistice would go into effect. However, at 0945, the regiment received the Corps' orders that all infantry were to advance at once, halting at 1100 and holding all ground taken. Confusion reigned surrounding this order, since it seemed to be contrary to what appeared to be the end of the conflict. Colonel Dowell requested clarification and received it. He later said, I hope my soldierly qualities of subordination and obedience will never be given as severe a test again. But orders were orders, and so the officers and sergeants went back to their outfits to go out into the hell one last time. The German machine guns, quiet up until now, chattered to life as the waves of advancing doughboys came into sight. Each battalion advanced about 200 to 300 meters, straightening the line along the Azan beaumont Road. The 3rd Battalion surged forward and seized the crossroads labeled Les Cap de Bonnes Barrances, but halted about 100 meters shy of the Tranché du Bosphore, which was too full of enemy machine guns to allow any further movement. This was the farthest advance of any unit in the 26th Division at the cessation of hostilities, just shy of the Hindenburg Line. Sergeant Leon Labonville from Holton in Company L was the last man to make the ultimate sacrifice from the 103rd Infantry being killed in the final attack. Many more men were wounded. Litter bearers were in short supply, so men from the field hospitals filled the role, including Captain Bain Jones. This morning, I nearly got picked off 15 minutes before the shooting stopped, he related in a letter to his sister. I was going down a ravine with some litter bearers to get a wounded man when all of a sudden a machine gun ahead opened up and the bullets came clipping by hit the ground and trees around us, and made us throw ourselves on our bellies in any old hole. We lay there until the armistice let us get up. It would have been tough luck to get such a souvenir at this time. End quote. As a quick note, one of our last stops in this past summer's Meuse-Argonne tour was the field where the U.S. 103rd Infantry attacked into and stopped at 11 a.m. on the 11th of November. The minutes ticked by. All along the Meuse front and on down to the Moselle front below Metz, the fighting continued. Captain Bob Casey, a 33rd Division artillery officer up on the line near Puyli, supporting the 89th Division, witnessed and recorded the last trying hour and minutes of the Great War in his memoir titled, the cannoneers have hairy ears. 
Casey related the news of the armistice arriving. Quote, Gaudron Ferme, November 11th, 8 o'clock a.m. And this is the end of it. In three hours, the war will be over. It seems incredible even as I write it. I suppose I ought to be thrilled and cheering. Instead, I am merely apathetic and incredulous. We got the word about 5.30 this morning amid a scene of great anticlimax. The little wooden shack was silent, or at least as silent as it could be with shells, friendly and hostile, just clearing the roof. The hillside along the east wall cut off most of the light of the dawn, and the tenants, undisturbed by daylight, were sleeping like dead men. A telephone switchboard had been installed at one end of the old brick stove. Before it, an operator was fighting to keep awake. Nearby, the adjutant lay in a chicken wire cot. Beyond the board partition, four lieutenants of the regimental staff lay draped on tables that had once been part of the Bosch officers' mess. The officers did not stir in their sleep as the 77s cracked down onto the road, or even when the shells of the 11th Field Artillery's 155s started over towards the roads behind Puyli with a detonation that jarred the choking dust from the rafters and the shingles from the roof. Then, the big scene. The telephone clicks. The adjutant snores. The operator hesitates. A second click. The operator plugs in. Hello, yes, hello, radio. I sat up. He's asleep. I'll take the message. Delay. Rustling of paper. Ready now? Shoot. I get you. I'll repeat. An armistice has been signed and becomes effective on the 11th November at 11 o'clock. I rolled out of my blankets. At that hour, hostilities and advance are to cease. Hold the line attained and give exact information as to the line attained at that hour. No communication nor fraternizing will take place with the enemy. Signed, Pershing. That all? Sure, of course it's enough. Fini la guerre. I jumped over and grabbed the message. The adjutant sat up in his cot. What's that? Armistice signed, I report. Cease firing at 11 o'clock. Radio from Eiffel. The adjutant. Good. Now all we have to do is keep alive until 11 o'clock. End quote. Casey then observed the last two hours of the First World War as he saw them with his own eyes. Quote, 9 a.m. Heine has some ammunition to dispose of. He's dropping 150s on the Lenoville-Beaumont Road, not hitting anything so far. 9.15 a.m. Order from General Hall to lessen rate of fire and cease firing in 30 minutes. Runners start out to spread the glad tidings to the batteries. 9.45 a.m. Sporadic shots, distant shelling and machine gun chatter. Ambulances still going forward. Nobody on road who doesn't have to be there. 10 a.m. Whiz-bang just burst at the bridge over the creek north of here. From doorway of the regimental PC, one can count seven bodies in a stack at the side of the road. 10.37 a.m. Heavies far back of Puyli are dumping everything they've got. GI cans are tearing up the road. The sector has become another Romagna. A shell just lit in the old sawmill. 
Men are out in the road running madly about. Other men are staggering out of the wreck and dropping as they emerge. Ambulances have been stopped and litter bearers are on their way across the clearing. Twenty men killed, thirty-five wounded. The war has twenty-three minutes still to go. 10.38 a.m. An 11th field artillery kitchen is near the road to the south of us. The battery alongside our shack has dropped into silence when this new bombardment started. Most of the men had gone down to the kitchen for breakfast. A shell, short of the road, smashed into the soup cannon. Fourteen dead, four wounded. In 22 minutes, we shall have peace. 10.40 a.m., a crash almost at our elbows has shaken the whole hillside. At first, we credited the disturbance to the Germans, but the facts are otherwise. The heavies of the 11th have opened up again with maximum charge. They are seeking pay for 14 lives. There is quite a jamboree about the 155 gun pits. Adjutants, majors, and volunteer workers of all ranks are howling, cease firing. Nobody pays any attention to them. Me? I'm all for the 11th. I'd be over there helping him if I knew how to fire a 155. 10.59 a.m. The 11th has just fired its last shot. The guns are so hot that the paint is rising from them in blisters. The crews are sweating despite the autumn chill of the air. To them, peace approaches as a regrettable interruption. End quote. At that exact moment, 10.59 a.m. on the morning of Monday, November 11th, 1918, over in the sector of the 313th Infantry Regiment, 79th Division near the village of ville de Vaux-Chaumont, another drama was tragically unfolding. It had been repeated hundreds of times that day already. From Martin Ott's recent battlefield guide titled the Meurs Heights to the Armistice. Quote, On the American right wing, the final assault of the war in this sector was carried out by the 26th and 79th Divisions. The Germans were pushed back from the Meurs Heights and retreated to a line running from Donvillers to romagne sur le They were ordered to hold the Kriemhild line at all costs. During the night of 11 November, the 313th Regiment was called up from Death Valley and was marched to Ormont Hill at Crepillon to reinforce the 314th, 315th, and 316th Regiments, 79th Division. The 1st Battalion of the 313th Regiment, including Company A, in which Henry Gunter served, was ordered to advance east from ville de chaumont in the direction of Azan, an important German logistic center. The 313th was sandwiched between the 314th Regiment on the left and the 26th Division on the right. Earlier that morning, chaumont devant donvillers and ville devant chaumont were mopped up and the attack continued towards Côte de Romagne, the 314th, and Azan, the 313th. When Company A advanced across a field on the right side along the D-65 to Teal Wood, a heavy German barrage was put down, but fortunately, according to several eyewitnesses, the marshy ground absorbed much of the impact of the explosions.
Emerging from a bank of fog, descending a rise in the field that they were in, Company A, including Private Henry Gunter and his friend Sergeant Ernest Powell, were suddenly surprised by German machine gunners who were entrenched in the edge of teal wood. Gunter fired a few rounds, but the Germans held their fire. Instead, they tried to wave him off. Gunter continued his advance in spite of Sergeant Powell's orders to stay put. At 10.59 a.m., although it is very unlikely that anyone under the chaotic circumstances at the time looked at his watch, one of the gunners opened fire. Gunter was struck in the left temple and died instantly. Popular stories about Germans shouting at Gunter to warn him should be regarded with some suspicion. According to many eyewitness accounts, the noise here during the last 30 minutes of the war was ear-shattering. Another thing that must be taken into consideration is the fact that the average American soldier was oblivious to the day, let alone the hour of the armistice. Corporal Oscar Lubchansky, Company G, a clerk with the 2nd Battalion, 313th Regiment, and grandfather of Gene Fax, author of the excellent book on the 79th Division, With Their Bare Hands, noted on his copy of the Armistice Order that he had received the document at 10.30 a.m. He then guided and accompanied Captain Bergwin to the advance PC before Moray and noted, Our artillery was raising hell all the while. At 11 a.m. on the dot, firing ceased. With both German and American shelling reaching a crescendo, it was simply impossible to reach Sergeant Powell's Company A to inform him of the imminent armistice in time. General Pershing's order of the day recorded Henry Nicholas Gunter as the last American soldier to die in the First World War. Despite records of Americans being killed after 11 a.m., Gunter is still officially credited as the last soldier killed during this conflict. End quote. As Gunter's body collapsed to the ground, miles to the north, Captain Bob Casey saw and heard the war end. Quote, 11 a.m. The silence is oppressive. It weighs in on one's eardrums. We have lived and had our being in din since we left the Forêt de la Reine. There seems to be something uncanny, unnatural in the all-enveloping lack of sound. A bird is singing in the tree outside our door. There is a tinkling note, somehow familiar, and yet like something out of a life we can barely remember having lived. Moisture is dripping from the eaves. End quote. The guns falling silent did indeed bring an uncomfortable silence to the battlefields. In the minutes following the ceasefire taking effect, many didn't seem to know how to react. Many simply resorted to simple acts driven by nature. From Jonathan Bratton's To the Last Man, quote, All the men knew what the silence meant, but nobody shouted or threw his hat in the air, wrote Major Stanhope Bain Jones. And then someone said, I guess I'll go look for some grub, end quote. Others thought it all unreal. 
In a letter written home a week later, Corporal William Shelberg of the 79th Division's 313th Machine Gun Battalion said to his sister of the ceasefire, Finally, 11 o'clock came, and let me tell you, they did not stop a second before the hour either. After things had stopped for a few minutes, I thought I was in heaven or dreaming. I had to pinch myself to be sure of it. John Barkley with his friends Jesse James and William Floyd, were recuperating behind the lines when they heard a commotion in town. Quote, On the 11th, we turned out again. We were all fixed up, ready to load on the trucks. We were sure this time we were headed for Metz. But the final orders to move didn't come through. About 9 o'clock in the evening, we heard a wild commotion in the little town. The French people... Old and young were running through the streets. Old men and women we'd seen sitting around their houses too feeble to move were out in the streets yelling, Vive la France! Vive la France! Vive l'Amérique! We couldn't imagine what was the matter. Hell seems to have broken loose. What's it all about? Jesse said to me. Search me, I said. Looks like all the frogs in town are going nuts. Down the street came a soldier. He was telling everybody the armistice was signed. I said, what's an armistice? It sounded like some kind of a machine to me. The other boys around there didn't know what it meant either. That was one thing we hadn't heard any rumors about. We figured out after a while that it had something to do with fighting, but we thought it was a kind of temporary pause, like a truce. We went back to our old quarters that night, but we didn't do much sleeping. We'd got so cannons didn't bother us but we weren't used to the kind of noise that went on in that French town all night long. There were mobs in the streets. French people didn't get drunk often, but they were all drunk this time. The children were drunk, and the old men and women were drunk, and the young people were drunk. They danced and sang. They sent up rockets and flares and laughed and shouted and cried. And all the time they were yelling, Vive la Marne! Vive la France! Vive l'Amérique! The next morning, everybody was up when the bugles blew, and everybody was determined to find out what this armistice was. When the official word came through that it meant peace, we couldn't believe it. The recruits in our division went as wild as the French, but the older men just sat still. They thought there must be a catch in it somewhere. Peace. It was too good to be true. Finally, Jesse said... Well, kid, I guess it really does mean the war's over. I said, I just can't believe it's true. But it was. End quote. While the French got drunk, German soldiers along the Western Front revealed their positions by firing off flares in celebration of the war's end. The Great War was over. Four years and more of bloodletting on a scale never before seen and nearly impossible to grasp was suddenly over, with the simple changing of one minute to the next. While the guns went cold in the autumn chill and the living set about burying the dead, the now former belligerents began to think of how to manage the bitterly won peace. That would be a whole other struggle, and one we know that would last barely a generation. 
So we are at a rather abrupt end of the Mirzargon series. By the time this gets released, I'll be deep in weekly readings for the University of Birmingham, so I'll have to go dark for a little bit. The Mirzargon isn't completely done for me, however. Given some free time, I'd like to do some supplemental episodes for folks who did not make it into the main narrative. Folks like Eddie Rickenbacker, Frank Luke, and the Hello Girls come to mind. I will get to them as soon as time allows. Which reminds me, once more, if by chance you're a famous film director who has a deep passion for World War I and this podcast and have thousands of dollars you'd love to pour into something you care about, I'm just saying for donepodcast at gmail.com for that PayPal button. You can't see it, but I am winking here behind this mic. And about the next big battle to cover on the BFWWP, well, a long time ago, I promised my patrons on Patreon that I was going to talk about the Second Battle of the Marne, a truly international battle that is fascinating. It's also the turning point of the Great War, so we'll work on that in the future. Before we go, I have one final item to bring up, and this comes from my older daughter who came up with it years ago at this point. I have not forgotten. So, with this episode ending, all of the battles of the Meuse are gone. Did you, you see what I did there? Did you catch that? You're right. I should see myself out. All right, folks. If the Lost Battalion Tours Meuse are gone battle study slash tour sounds like something you would like to join... Terrible dad jokes included. Shoot us an email at lostbattaliontours at gmail.com. You'll be on our contact list, and you'll be first to hear when we announce our next week in the Merzargon in 2024. We're shooting to have it in the first week of July of that year. It's a great time, folks. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at WW1Podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos, and check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. As always, thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care. <laughs>